When our kids were a bit younger, uh, Helena, my wife and I made this and laminated it and stuck it on our fridge. It, you probably can't read it from there, but it, it says family rules because we love one another. And it's got a list of stuff that we, uh, that we told the kids they needed to, to do. We listen to mum and dad. Uh, we use nice words. We are kind to each other. We share our things. We're thankful for what we are given. It wasn't meant to be comprehensive, but a helpful kind of guide for the kids as we want to raise our kids uh, for how to behave and how we wanted them to be in our household, how we wanted them to treat each other, how we wanted them to treat other people, how we wanted them to uh, treat their parents, us, how we want them to live in our household. And as I've been thinking about that, I've, I've been uh, wondering if, if God was going to produce something like this, you know, how to be in God's household, how to be in God's family, what would that be like? What would it be? Now, some people might hear that and say, well, he has the Ten Commandments. And stone tablets are far more impressive than a laminated piece of paper anyway. But actually, it occurs to me, as I've been reading 1 Timothy over this past couple of weeks, that this letter of 1 Timothy has something to say about that question. And as we think about that now, it's actually quite a helpful way to start introducing us to the letter of 1 Timothy that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. And so to do this, what I want to do is I want to um, jump into the middle of 1 Timothy. We are meant to be looking at chapter 1 today, but I want to jump in at chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, because I think that's the point where we find out what the purpose of this letter is, and that really helps us to, to understand it as we read it from the beginning. So the Apostle Paul has written this letter to Timothy, who is his his young protege, his apprentice. Uh, Paul has been training and mentoring Timothy and passing on certain responsibilities to Timothy, including the responsibility to help young churches to get established and mature. And this is what he says to Timothy is his reason for writing this letter to him. And it should appear on the screen there behind me. I'm going to read from verse 14 and into 15. It says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Did you hear it there? What the purpose for writing this letter is? So that Timothy, and we as we read this along with him, can know how people should conduct themselves in God's household, in God's family. How God wants his family, that is the church, to live. And so as we read this letter, we might expect to find that it will contain instructions about how to behave, how the church should be organised, the roles of different people, of men, of women, of elders how to care for the needy, and, and so on. And it does contain these kinds of things, as we're going to see over the weeks to come. But interestingly, this is not a how-to list or, or a set of instructions like our family rules are. And you see in the next verse, in verse 16, it gives us a clue to what the foundation of these instructions are in this letter. It tells us, in fact, the secret of godliness the secret for living the life that God wants us to live. Let me read verse 16 now. So he goes on to say, Beyond all question, 
the mystery that is the secret from which godliness springs is great. What is it? He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. What is the secret of godliness? What is the mark of God's family that will flow out into the kind of life that God wants his household, his people to live? Well, it's not a moral code. It's not a list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's not about getting your habits right, do this and don't do that. And nor is it some special strategy or technique or about kind of getting the right mindset like we might talk about, you know, the, the, the secret for living a happy life. No, the secret, we are told, is a person. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit and so on. That's talking about Jesus and the things that Jesus did. The secret of godliness is to know the truth about Jesus. That it's not something that we do, in fact. It's something that God has done, that he appeared in our world, in the flesh, in the person, Jesus, and that has changed the relationship between God and people forever. He has opened the doors to God's household and welcomed people in. And so the secret of godliness is found in your relationship with that person, with Jesus, and trusting him. That's Paul's purpose for writing this letter, that whatever other particular instructions he gives, that's the foundation, and it all relates to trusting Jesus, which, as I said, is really helpful to know as we come back now to chapter 1, because what we see in the very first instruction, if you turn to chapter 1 and verse 3, that Paul gives to Timothy, the first instruction is to command certain people not to teach false doctrines, not to teach the wrong things about God, about Jesus. Let me read verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1. This is not going to be on the screen, so hopefully you do have your Bibles open. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, I suspect that for some people, and perhaps for some of us as well, that the mention of false doctrines and commanding people not to teach false doctrines might sound either just boring or unnecessarily narrow and rigid and dogmatic. But if the truth about Jesus is the key, the secret for how to live towards God and in his world towards other people, then surely that makes it pretty important, doesn't it, to make sure we get that right, to make sure the truth about Jesus doesn't get distorted or misrepresented. And it's such a common problem that the Bible often speaks about, that when people move away from trusting Jesus as the core of what we are on about, it's terribly destructive. That even if, you know, what what they're teaching is about God, if it doesn't focus on Jesus, then it doesn't promote the work of God in our lives, as it says in verse 4 there. It doesn't enable us to live like people who belong in God's family. The only thing that can do that 
is faith in Jesus, as it says at the end of verse 4 there. And so this command to, to, to stop false teaching is not dry academics, nor is it being unnecessarily rigid and dogmatic. Its purpose is to produce the love that God wants us to have. Love for God, love for other people, for our neighbours, even for our enemies. That's what he says in verse 5. The goal of this command is love. And it comes from faith in Jesus. So that's what Timothy needs to be on about. And that's what the church needs to be on about. And to guard the message of Jesus so that it doesn't get distorted by false teaching. So, if you want to be living towards God the way that God wants you to, and in his world towards other people the way that God wants you to, this is the answer. And in case we haven't quite got it yet, he tells us again in verse 5, but he kind of expands it a bit more. And so I want to take a moment to just dwell on verse 5 a little bit, because I think it's a wonderful verse there. Let me read verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So you see, there the goal is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I just kind of want to work backwards through those, because I think that's how the, the logic of this Works and, and together, that those three things paint such a beautiful picture of what will lead to that life of love. So we'll start with the third one, a sincere faith, which is really the foundation of the other two. And as I said, this takes us back to, to what we were saying of the secret of godliness, a genuine trust in the truth about Jesus. That what God has done for me, trusting that, that is me personally, Trusting, trusting that. Because I know that, sadly, some people seem to work on the idea of faith by association. You know, I'll borrow my faith or I'll outsource my faith to the people around me, uh, my, my family, or I'll go along to church and I'll just do the things that other people do and I'll just assume the faith of the people around me. But no, it has to be a sincere, personal faith. Not a solo faith, that's, that's not what this is saying. We, we do faith together, but it must be personal for each one of us. No one else can do your faith for you. It's my personal trust in Jesus. And because it's sincere, it, it's not hypocritical either. You know, saying that I, I trust Jesus with my lips, but not really having that reflected in my heart, that's what being hypocritical is in my faith. So that's the foundation, having a sincere faith, a genuine faith, me personally. And a sincere faith leads to a good conscience. Now, a good conscience could mean a clear conscience, that is, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable that I haven't done something wrong. But I think actually what a good conscience means is a healthy conscience. That is, a conscience that works. A, a conscience that allows me to actually look at myself, to, to look at my motives and my actions to see if I actually am loving God and loving others and living the way that God wants me to. And so, and so a good conscience is the opposite we see in chapter 4 verse 2 of a seared conscience, a, a, a calloused, a hardened conscience. Do you know when you get calluses? Do you know, do you know how you get calluses? 
yet calluses from repeatedly doing something, robbing in a way that's uncomfortable and maybe even painful, but after a while, the calluses build up and you don't really feel it anymore. It was painful to start with, it was uncomfortable to start with, but then when the calluses form, you don't really feel it anymore. It's kind of like when you're learning to play the guitar. I know, put your hand up if you've got calluses on the end of your fingertips from playing the guitar. I know a bunch of you do, that's right, yeah. I, I used to play the guitar a bit, not so much anymore, so my fingertips are all soft. But I remember when, when you first start playing the guitar, the strings almost cut your fingers and it really hurts for a while. But then after a while, you get these calluses on your fingertips and it doesn't hurt anymore. And so that enables you to play the guitar without being in pain. Now, that's kind of a good thing. You want that when it comes to your fingertips and you're playing the guitar and you can stick a pin in there and it doesn't really hurt. But that's not what you want on your conscience. You want your conscience to be able to be pricked when something is wrong. You want it to be able to tell you, hey, this isn't quite right here, something's not, something's not right, so that you can then examine your life and see whether you're actually loving people and God the way that you should be. You want to be able to feel uncomfortable when something is not right. And so a good conscience, a healthy, working conscience means that you can examine your life in light of what God's word says and make changes where you need to. That's a good conscience. And a sincere faith also leads to a pure heart. The heart is who you are on the inside. Other people can't see the inside, but God can see the inside. And this speaks of a heart that has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And so we know that we have nothing to hide from God. And so we can draw near to God and genuinely seek the life that God wants us to live, the love that he wants us to have. And with a conscience, as I said, that doesn't mind examining whether I'm doing that right and, and changing my behaviour. And I can do that in confidence because I know that God forgives me. And so there's this positive cycle, this constant cycle going on of self-examination and a changed life all in the confidence of forgiveness. And that pushes me increasingly towards the kind of life, the kind of love that God wants us to have. And so that's why it leads to the goal of love. And so you could just summarise that verse, really, verse 5, as as saying we just need to have a genuine, self-examined, personal trust in Jesus. That's what God wants for us. And that's what leads to the kind of love that God wants us to have, which is why the secret of godliness is found in Jesus. And that's why good doctrine is so important. As much as it might sound dry or, dogma- dry or dogmatic, it's, it's not, because good doctrine keeps taking us back to making sure that we do have that personal trust in Jesus that is confident to examine myself and to want to know that all the more clearly and all the more fully and all the more deeply and to be able to push back on distortions of that that might come in, which is why Paul was telling Timothy to do exactly that. So on to our final point. What was it that these false teachers were teaching and that Paul wants Timothy to guard against. 
I don't think we get a complete picture of what exactly they were teaching. We know it involves moving away from having trust in Jesus at the core. But I think we get some more clues than that. And it seems to be something that was common everywhere. We see it other places in the New Testament as well. And in fact, is still common today. And it's to do with the family rules thing that I was talking about before. It's having the wrong idea of what will produce the kind of life that God wants me to have. And in particular, it's having the wrong idea about God's laws and what they're for, what the purpose of God's laws are. So you can see verse 7, these false teachers wanted to be teachers of the law, that is, God's laws in the Old Testament. But Paul says they don't know what they're talking about. Verse 8, he says, we know that the law is good, but you've got to know what it's for. You've got to use it properly. And these false teachers thought that the purpose of God's law was so that righteous people could know how to be righteous. So focus on keeping the laws and you'll be right. And that's still what people think today, that God gives us a checklist that we can tick it off and say, yes, I'm doing it right. But actually, no, Paul says it's the opposite of that, could you believe? It's not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, because it shows up where I am being unrighteous, where I'm not living the way that God wants me to. So let me read now that last paragraph from verse 8 to 11 again. Have a listen to what he says. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practising homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So those are examples Paul is giving from the Old Testament of of things that, behaviours that don't fit with the message of Jesus. And he says that the reason that I need to be told these things is not because I'm righteous in my heart and I want to know how to do that better. It's because I'm inclined to do those things. I need to be told not to lie because I'm inclined to lie. I need to be told not to be sexually immoral because I'm inclined to be sexually immoral. And so the purpose of the law is that it highlights the problem in my heart. And so the law is for sinners, as he says, in that it shows me that I'm a sinner. And hopefully it limits my sin because it tells me not to do it. But it doesn't make me righteous. Instead, it points me to my need for Jesus because I do the things that God says don't do. And so I need Jesus to wash me clean and forgive me. So Paul is saying these are things that don't fit with the gospel of Jesus, but that doesn't then mean that the reverse is true, that if I don't do these things or if I do the right things, then I automatically will be living the godly life that God wants me to. It's kind of like fruit on a tree, right? You know, uh, an apple tree is meant to produce apples. Thank you. Yeah, apple. Just checking if you're awake. But if you've got what you think is an apple tree and it's not producing apples, in fact, it's producing chocos, 
then something is clearly wrong, right? It's probably not an apple tree. But that doesn't mean that I can go and then staple apples onto my choco vine and call it an apple tree. It doesn't make it an apple tree. And this is where the false teachers were getting it wrong, and people still do today. A list of laws, even God's laws, is not the path to righteousness. That if we can just focus on keeping all these laws and these rules, then we'll be the people that God wants us to be. It just doesn't work. And it's not the purpose of God's laws. And if I could just give an example, and one that I think is probably worth talking about a little bit more, I'm I'm all too aware, as I'm sure that you are, that as we read this list, it is massively unpopular to even suggest that practising homosexuality might belong in the category of something that God says no to, that God says is sin. But the Bible is clear that it is, that if you're a follower of Jesus, he says to you, that is not the life that I want for you. That's clear in the Bible here and elsewhere. But I want us to notice two things that kind of go alongside that, which is important to to see. Firstly, it's not the same-sex attraction that is the problem. It's acting on that temptation, the homosexual practice. And I know that struggle with that temptation is a real struggle for for many people, for, for Christians that I know, And I also know, though, that it's not a struggle that you need to do alone, particularly if that's something that you're struggling with. And the Christians I know who have shared their struggle in this area with others have found real helpful support from mature Christians around them. And many of those people who are struggling in that way are absolute champions of the faith, who, in the way that they they stand firm in the face of that struggle and seek to live a life that is faithful to trusting Jesus. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is that homosexual practice is not in this separate category of sin like we might sometimes treat it. It belongs alongside every other kind of sin, both the extreme ones and the the common ones that we all struggle with, like lying. So if you know someone who is struggling in this area, we, we must not... Treat them as if they're in some unique or special category of sinner. If they're a believer who is seeking to honour God in this area of life, then praise God for that and help them to do that. If they're an unbeliever, then what they need is the good news of Jesus and to put their trust in him. And as I said, I think this is where some Christians get this wrong. You won't live the life that God wants you to And you can't get others to live the life that God wants them to just by not committing sexual immorality, whether homosexual or any other kind. You won't won't live the life that God wants you to just by not murdering someone. You won't live the life that God wants you to just by not slave trading or by not lying, all those things in that list there. Some Christians seem to think that their mission is to improve the moral standards of the people around us, whether it's your family or your, your friends or your neighbours. But that's such a short-sighted goal. Yeah, our goal is not just for our neighbours to not lie as much, you know, to be more honest. Well, that would be good, wouldn't it? Or for our neighbours to be less sexually immoral. Well, that would be good. 
If your neighbours are murdering people, you should probably tell someone about that. But we don't want just people to be people to be just better behaved. We want people to be saved from hell by the mercy of God through trusting Jesus. And that's what will produce in them the life that God wants for them, the love that God wants for them. And so the goodness of God's laws is not that it gives me a moral code so that I can live a perfect life and get God's seal of approval. No, the goodness of God's laws is that when I look at them and I see those things in myself, it says to me, hey, you need Jesus. And it is a blessing to have that pointed out to you. And some of us recognise that easily and some of us recognise that more slowly, but we all need it. So let me finish by just asking a question. Are you investing in what really matters for yourself? That is, do you have a genuine, self-examined, personal trust in Jesus? Not kind of borrowing your faith from the people around you. We're not trying to just follow a bunch of rules. But genuinely investing in your own faith in Jesus that he is the only one who can give you a pure heart in the, in the sight of God, that you can then live a self-examined life with a, with a good conscience, that you can constantly be looking at yourself and turning away from the bad and turning towards the love that God wants you to have. That's what God wants for you. And that's how we live in the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you will be giving each one of us, by your spirit, a genuine trust in Jesus, that our own heart is doing business with you, that you'll be strengthening us in that faith by your spirit, that you'll be growing the fruit of the spirit in our lives, the love in particular that you want us to have. And Father, help each one of us to be clear that this is the foundation of of how we know you and how we live for you. And we do ask again, Father, that will flow out into the fruit of love and that that will be a blessing to the people around us and that it will bring glory to you and to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.